0: Welcome to Tax Notes Talk, a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Worldwide Tax Daily. This week, limited interest. On November 26th, the Treasury Department released highly anticipated regulations detailing rules under Section 163J for computing limits on interest deductions for different types of businesses. While practitioners and our reporters are still digesting the 439-page regulation package and assessing how various rules work and interact with other code provisions, we're going to just touch upon a few key elements today. Here to walk us through some of their initial observations are Tax Notes Today legal reporters Emily Foster and Eric Yock. Emily, Eric, welcome back. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave.
1: Uh, Emily, let's
0: start with uh, with you and and how the TCJA changed the rules for interest deduction.
1: I think first, as background, uh, what I would say is that before the TCJA, businesses could generally deduct business interest expense, which led to kind of a preference for debt financing over equity financing and gave some concern about companies becoming overleveraged. So there have been lots of proposals in the past on how to address that, and some of them have included uh, restrictions on interest deductions. But more importantly, probably for the TCJA, the provision that limits interest deductions is great revenue raiser and is estimated to raise about $250 billion over the 10-year budget window. So what Congress did was amend Section 163J. And under old Section Section 163J, the focus was on earnings stripping. And therefore, it targeted uh, related party debt and interest payments made to uh, entities that weren't subject to U.S. tax. And what Congress did in this provision is extended it to all businesses, regardless of ownership. So it applies to corporations, to partnerships, to individuals. And it doesn't really matter whether the parties were related or not, and regardless of whether the recipient is subject to U.S. tax. So it's got a much further reach. At a high level, the business interest limitation is based on 30% of adjusted taxable income. And so that's the net business interest, so the difference between the interest expense and the interest income. So for any interest that businesses can't deduct in one year, they can carry forward indefinitely. And then that becomes interest in the subsequent year, subject to the limitation. The TCJA does provide some exceptions for small businesses, some regulated utilities, and other businesses that can elect out. So what this has meant for highly leveraged businesses is that the interest limitation has caused taxpayers and practitioners to revisit the debt equity decisions, financing alternatives, and their tax planning strategies. And with the proposed regs, probably even more so. All
0: right, let's get into the proposed regs. What did they do? Uh, What what issues have they addressed, and is anything surprising in them?
1: So some of the things about the proposed regs were expected because the IRS issued a notice in April, and some officials gave some heads up uh, in the recent weeks before the proposed regs were released. So, for example, we knew the proposed regs were going to be at the partnership level, where it's going to be also applied at the consolidated group level. We also knew that for corporations, because there's no investment interest and investment income that all of their interest was going to be considered business interest income subject to the Section 163 limitation. And so that raised the question, how do you treat uh, interest earned by a corporation that through an investment in a partnership, which the regs did address. We also knew uh, from a Treasury official before the regs were released that the regs was going to apply to controlled foreign corporations. And so that's relevant for purposes of determining a U.S. shareholder's subpart F income or their global intangible low-taxed income. So practitioners and taxpayers raised a lot of questions prior to the release of the regs. And while it seems that many of those issues were addressed, the regs clearly state some issues that have been reserved. And the IRS reserved them either because they were going to be addressed in other reg packages, or they felt they needed more information to determine the approach to the regulations, or they really weren't sure whether further guidance would be helpful. And so the preamble identifies what those are. So for example, a long-standing issue was the interaction between the Section 163J regs and the base erosion and anti-abuse tax under Section 59A. And that issue was reserved because it's a Expected to be addressed in the beat regs. So the biggest surprise in the proposal was the far-reaching definition of interest. It sweeps in not only items that are interest elsewhere in the code, which was anticipated, but also which were things like original issue discount or acquisition discount, but also items that Treasury thought were similar to interest and items that really aren't interest at all. Under the statute, business interest just says interest paid or accrued on any indebtedness that's allocable to a trade or business. But according to some practitioners, the more questionable items on the laundry list in the regs that seem less like interest on debt are things like substitute payments in a securities lending transaction or a sale repurchase transaction, partnership guarantee payments for the use of capital and factoring income. But the rules go even further because there is an, what's labeled as an anti invoidance rule embedded in the definition of interest. And under that rule, deductible expenses or loss that a taxpayer incurs in securing the use of funds, predominantly in consideration of the time value money, is treated as an interest expense. And what's notable about that is that it's not symmetrical, so that taxpayers aren't allowed to include the corresponding income items. So practitioners had expected a much narrower definition that wouldn't have included interest equivalents. So this is an item that's likely to be highly debated. And there's already some discussion that some may challenge Treasury's expansive definition since Congress didn't provide either a broader specific grant of regulatory authority.
0: Before getting into some of the more complicated rules, uh, can you tell me uh, how the limit on uh, the deduction generally works?
1: Yeah. So basically, the business interest expense deduction is limited to three things. It's the sum of business interest income, 30% of adjusted taxable income, or ATI, and floor plan financing at- interests. And what that means is a couple things. So first that business interest expense can offset dollar-for-dollar business interest income. And so that's why it's important to know what's included in business interest expense and business interest income. And so the key computation, then, is the ATI. And the regulations basically follow the statute with some additional adjustments. But Treasury was actually granted authority to make adjustments as necessary in terms of computing ATI. So ATI uh, excludes things uh, like non-business income gain, deduction, or loss, business interest or income, net operating loss deductions, the Section 199 Cap A, business income deductions, and allowable depreciation, amortization, and items of that nature before January 1, 2022. After that, taxpayers' ATI, or their limitation in their interest deduction, will significantly increase because depreciation and amortization won't be added back. So some practitioners have said that many of their clients won't be really affected by Section 163J until 2022 when the limit is stricter. But that may also be before they've seen the proposed regs. So whether the expansive definition affects that, we'll have to see. So while the basic computations seem kind of straightforward, it gets complicated fast when applying it to groups, partnerships, and controlled foreign corporations, and when a taxpayer has both exempt and non-exempt trades or businesses.
0: Let's follow up on the, uh, the point of partnerships. And uh, Eric, can you tell me uh, about some of the initial reactions to the rules on partnerships? Sure. And
2: as Emily said earlier, uh, one of the biggest changes to Section 163J in the TCJA was its application at the partnership level. One thing that makes partnerships unique is that they don't pay tax at an entity level. It's actually just an aggregation of its partners, and the partners pay tax. So prior to the release of the proposed regulations, practitioners really wondered how the IRS and Treasury would treat the limit since interest, income, and expense would ultimately flow up to the partners. So when the rules came out, the proposed regs clarified that business interest expense typically retains its character when it flows to partners as non-separately stated against. The government also said that for the passive activity loss rules, the interest retains its character as either passive or non-passive when allocated to a partner or shareholder. So it applied an entity level approach in determining business interest expense, but it still uses the aggregate approach. For example, let's say you have a partnership that has investment interest expense and it flows up to a corporate partner. That is now business interest expense for the corporate partner, as Emily said earlier, because a corporation can't have investment interest expense. One thing that jumped out to practitioners, though, is how to treat business interest expense that flows up to a limited partner that doesn't materially participate in the activity. Prior to the TCJA, that limited partner may have interest expense under 163D and would have to apply those limits. Now, under the proposed regulations, both sections 163D and 163J may apply in the same year, which is shocking to some practitioners.
0: So it sounds like more clarifications may be necessary in this area. Uh, what about the broad
2: definition of interest? How is that affecting partnerships? So prior to the release of the proposed regulations, uh, some partnerships were wondering whether in order to, to sidestep Section 163J, they could instead issue guaranteed payments for the use of capital, and they could write that off under 162 and just get around 163J altogether. But the definition of interest in the proposed rules sweeps in guaranteed payments for the use of capital. So some people were a little bit discouraged by that, but others were kind of shocked that the definition includes any guaranteed payment for any use of capital. So someone said, well, what if a partner contributes property to a partnership, and the partnership ends up paying rent for the use of that property. That looks an awful lot like a guaranteed payment, and so they're wondering now if those payments are subject to 163J limits. So the proposed regulations also appear to have kept the tracing rules under section 1.1638T. Now, some have said that raises questions of debt finance distributions because under Notice 8935, the characterization of that distribution of loan proceeds to a partner is traced to that partner's use of the proceeds. So in a large partnership context, if tracing is still required under the proposed rules, it's possible the partnership would have no idea what the partner uses the the loan proceeds for. So characterizing that would be challenging if not impossible. The proposed regulations also clarified that a partnership cannot have both excess interest income and excess interest expense. So a reallocation method was added that is a part from the partnership section 704b allocations. Now, practitioners said it's extremely complex, but it's generally taxpayer-favorable. Some have also noted that the reallocation uh, might not be used very much because most partnerships likely aren't allocating interest income and interest expense differently. One practitioner did point out, though, that it was a mistake for the government not to consider remedial allocations in determining adjusted taxable income. Now, remedial allocations have come up somewhat frequently in other aspects of the TCJA, like bonus depreciation. But one practitioner noted, you know, remedial income items are completely made up, but they're always accompanied by a corresponding offset for another partner. Perhaps most interesting is what the IRS and Treasury didn't address in the proposed regs. Rules on self-charge lending and the treatment of interest, expense, and tiered partnerships will be addressed at a later time.
0: Emily, uh, you mentioned that the uh, limitation applies to controlled foreign corporations. How do those rules work in the regs?
1: Well, the pros regs generally apply to CFCs in the same manner that they apply to domestic C-corps. But has provided kind of an elaborate scheme to address some distortions that could arise when applying the interest deduction to CFCs. So, for example, one question often raised before the regs came out was if the limitation applies to CFCs, how are intercompany loans between CFCs treated? So the issue is that before applying Section 163J, if a U.S. parent corporation had two CFCs and one pays interest to the other, then one CFC has tested income and one CFC has tested loss, and those two amount net for purposes of guilty inclusion. But because Section 163 kicks in, then the business interest expense isn't allowed, and the amount of business interest expense and business interest income would not offset causing an inclusion in the U.S. parent guilty amount. So Treasury and the IRS proposed an elective alternative method uh, that they said would better reflect the realities of borrowings by related CFCs, uh, basically because it assumes that money is fungible within the group. They made the approach elective because Treasury thought that the general approach might still be preferable by taxpayers in some situations. The elective method adopts an approach uh, similar to the partnership rules. So basically, if a CFC group, which is defined by the regs, makes the election, then a group member computes its business interest expense on a separate company basis. But for purposes of computing a CFC's adjusted taxable income, there's a tearing up. So an upper-tier CFC group member can take into an account its proportional share of the excess taxable income of certain lower-tier CFCs in determining its adjusted taxable income. So while that can be beneficial, it's likely to require a significant amount of work to do the computation and analyze the results.
0: So this is, there's clearly a lot of complexity here. We've, we've talked about how these rules apply to partnerships and to controlled foreign corporations. We're not going to get to how they apply to consolidated groups. Uh, listeners interested in that area uh, should check out uh, some of our coverage of that. Links to uh, relevant stories will be available in the show notes. Eric, what sort of businesses are exempt from these rules?
2: So the statute provides exceptions for small businesses, some regulated utilities, and certain electing real estate and farming trades or businesses. For a farming business, the proposed regs relied on the definition from Section 263, Cap A. And for regulated utilities, to briefly just summarize high level, what they did was they basically said, you're a regulated utility if your rates are set by some sort of form of like governing body or cooperative. There's also a de minimis rule that states if a taxpayer is engaged in the utility trade or business, and it has both Regulated and non regulated items. If more than 90% of the sale of its items are regulated items, it qualifies and it's accepted from 163J. One interesting thing that's popped up is real estate can be accepted from 163J if they elect out, but the definition of whether you're a real estate trader business relies on section 162A. If you recall from a prior podcast, the same definition caused problems for taxpayers trying to figure out if rental income qualifies for 199 CAP A. Whether you're a passive real estate owner receiving income and you qualify as a trader business under or 162, it's unclear, especially if you have a triple net lease. So one of the things is if you elect out, if you're a farming or real estate trader business and you elect out of 163J's limits, you have to use ADS depreciation. You can't use bonus depreciation. So I think a lot of people right now are stepping back and they're trying to figure out, you know, what's my cost benefit if I elect out, but I can't bonus. So let's say you have commercial real estate, highly leveraged, say you have some restaurants in there. You may not be able to use bonus because of the qualified improvement property issue under bonus that hasn't been fixed yet. So if you can't use bonus on big commercial projects, might just elect out anyway. But let's say now you have smaller residential property. Maybe it's not as highly leveraged and maybe you can use bonus on some aspects. It might make sense then to elect out and take your bonus. So I think people are spending a lot of time right now modeling on those issues.
0: Now, the TCJA uh, provide an exception for small businesses, except
2: those that are tax shelters.
0: Did the regulations expand on that?
2: Yeah, so that has actually come up quite a bit since the proposed regs had been released. So if you're under the $25 million gross receipts threshold, there are still two ways that you could get pulled into the 163J limits. One way is by aggregating multiple businesses with common owners, but the other way, which is more people nervous, is if they are considered a tax shelter. Now, if you dig into the definition of a Tax shelter in other areas of the code, you'll find there is a broad definition. And one subset of that being a tax shelter is what's known as a syndicate. So a taxpayer is considered a syndicate if at least 35% of its losses are allocable to a limited partner or a limited entrepreneur. Now that's a little confusing because there are regulations on other provisions of the code dealing with syndicates that use the word allocated, not allocable. So one practitioner said, well, think about an LLC where every partner is limited. Okay. Now under the rules, are they now tax shelters? Are they syndicates? So can they not elect out? So let's say they have, you know, hundred thousand dollars of gross receipts. They're well under, you know, the threshold for 25 million, but now they're a syndicate because they have limited partners and they allocate more than 35% of their losses to those limited partners. Would they be in? It's a big question. People are kind of wondering now. Some people that really weren't concerned at first are now very concerned that they are caught up in this.
0: There's so much to these regulations. We're not able to get to everything. Are there other rules that our listeners should be focusing on?
1: The first rule that I would highlight is that the proposed regs generally require taxpayers to allocate business interests between the exempt and non-exempt trades of businesses. And Treasury and the IRS determined that the most appropriate approach is based on an adjusted basis in the assets used, rather than based on income, or applying a tracing regime, although there are some exceptions and other special rules in that approach. So the allocation rules would affect all taxpayers that have one-exempt businesses that Eric discussed, uh, as well as a non-exempt trader business. The regs do provide uh, another de minimis rule, such that if at least 90% of a taxpayer's basis and its assets is allocable to a trader business that's either exempt or non-exempt, then all the taxpayers' interest expense and income would be treated as such. Uh, but that still requires the taxpayers to determine the adjusted basis in its assets, and in some cases, that's going to be a lot of work. There are other allocation rules that then de- define how other tax items would be allocated between businesses that are exempt and non-exempt. The consolidated return rules are another area that, uh, as you mentioned, we're not covering today. But the pros regs lay out the treatment when a member joins or leaves a group, as well as other consolidated group-specific issues. Some issues are emerging, particularly in the context of a group's allocation between exempt and exempt non-exempt, and there have been some unintended consequences that could surface, particularly when a member is a regulated utility that's exempt from Section 163J.
0: Well, it sounds like practitioners will be dealing with these regulations uh, and and figuring out what they mean for for a long time. When will they be expected to comply with these rules?
1: Well, the effective date of the proposed regs was another surprise. Unlike some of the other TCJA regs, they won't be retroactive, but rather they're effective when the final regs are published in the Federal Register, sometime in 2019. But taxpayers can elect to apply them effective January 1st, 2018. But they have to adopt all the rules. There's no cherry picking allowed. So that's a decision taxpayers will have to make. And if they don't adopt the regs for 20. 20- 2018, then they'll need to determine and apply a reasonable interpretation of the statute.
2: And Dave, just one thing that I want to add to is like right now we're getting all these reg packages from the TCJA, and I think when they come out, some practitioners have said you know it's it's pretty common to read a reg package in isolation, 199 cap a in isolation, 163 j in isolation, you know, and then I think as they're going through and modeling all these transactions and what makes more sense for each taxpayer, I think if we had this conversation in one year from now, there'd be a, many different answers than we're actually getting right now. So it's all so new. People are still going through it. And it's such a big, heavy lift in terms of research that I think in one year, we'll really get a sense of, uh, of how the filing season went.
0: Well, I think we'll probably have to come back in a year and find out if that's right. It sounds like a plan. All right. Eric, Emily, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having us.
2: Thanks, Dave.
0: And now, coming attractions. Each week, we preview commentary that will be appearing in the next issue of the Tax Notes magazines. We're joined by executive editor for commentary, Jasper Smith. Jasper, what will you have for us? In Tax Notes,
3: Jefferson VanderWalk explains how the OECD Base Erosion and Profit Shifting Project has influenced multinationals. And Mark Cohen and Kathy Hurley examine whether the tuition for executive MBA programs is deductible, and the magazine's Person of the Year will be revealed. In State Tax Notes, Justice Anthony M. Kennedy is recognized as that magazine's Person of the Year, and several State Tax Notes Advisory Board members discuss his influence on state taxation and the possible effects of his absence. Also, Walter Hellerstein, Richard Pomp, and Alyssa McLaughlin of McDermott reflect on Peter Faber's impending retirement. And in Tax Notes International, members of the Netherlands Bureau for Economic Policy Analysis discuss the recent resurgence of exemptions of the normal rate of return to capital in the EU, while Paolo Pantagini and Francesca Pighetti examine Italy's
0: budget law for 2019 and its major changes to the corporate tax system. You can read all that and a lot more in the December 17th editions of Tax Notes, State Tax Notes, and Tax Notes International. That's it for this week. You can follow me on Twitter at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at org. And hey, if you like what we're doing here, please leave us a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com backslash products. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk.